Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Guy Ford. I'm a professor in the school, but I also am the director of the MBA program. It gives me great pleasure to welcome our speaker tonight, Alice Albright. Alice is the Chief Executive Officer of the Global Partnership for Education, a partnership and fund solely dedicated to education in developing countries. The partnership's made up of 65 developing country governments, so I heard it's gone to 89, so 89, as well as other donor governments, civil society organisations and NGOs, teacher organisations, international organisations and private sector organisations and foundations. Before taking on her role as CEO at the Global Partnership for Education, Alice served in the Obama administration as the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. And prior to that, Alice served as the Chief Financial and Investment Officer for the Global Alliance of Vaccines and Immunisation. So tonight, Alice will speak about the partnership, global education opportunities, and some of the funding challenges it has, and how the partnership is adapting and innovating to address some of these challenges. The format will be Alice will speak for a while and then we'll just open up to questions from the floor. So would you please join me in welcoming, welcoming to, the, to the stand, Alice Albright. Thank you. It's a delight uh, to be here. Um, I always get very excited and energized when I walk into universities and learn a bit about what people are doing. So I'm just very, very happy to be here, Guy. Thank you so much for that kind introduction uh, and for hosting us. Uh, my colleagues and I have been here uh, in a, for about a week in Australia, and we're having a wonderful time. Uh, we've been to Sydney at the beginning of the week. Uh, we were in uh, Canberra, we were in Melbourne. We're here. Uh, we've gotten very used to the time zone, thank goodness. Uh, but we have come away with uh, such a sense of uh, enthusiasm, excitement for the work that we're doing, uh, a real sense that Australia wants to play an important role in the world uh, and wants to start thinking about a lot of the global challenges that are out there, and I'll tell you about a big one, which is education, in a minute. But Australia wants to get involved. Uh, we were with, uh, we were in Melbourne yesterday, uh, and met with um, a fantastic woman uh, who gave us sort of an insight into how some of the corporates in Australia have really begun to realize that some of the issues in the developing world are Australia's problems. And it was music to my ears, because uh, sometimes we don't hear that elsewhere. Uh, so I just think that, I just come away from this country just feeling like you guys rock. So I'm delighted to be here. Uh, and I, I'd love to see uh, the business school take on uh, maybe some thinking about how business folks can get more involved uh, in development. Anyway, I thought what I would do this evening uh, is spend a little bit of time telling you about the challenge of international education and why it is such a pressing problem. Uh, our business model has been under uh, a lot of evolution lately. We've done a lot of changing and reforming and shaping and thinking. I want to tell you about that and the work that we do. Uh, I also want to tell you about how we raise money and how what we're doing right now, which is a big campaign around that. Uh, and then also uh, end with sort of summing up about why this is such an important issue right now and how 
uh, you all can help and how Australia can help. So let me start by talking about uh, the global education crisis. And I'm also happy at the end to take questions. So if you have questions at the end, uh, I'm happy to meet in little groups, big groups, this groups, and answer whatever questions you all have. Uh, while at the moment the globe faces a global education crisis, and I'm going to tell you about that shortly, we also have a time of enormous opportunity because I think that the world uh, is beginning to realize that we do have a problem and we do have to do something about it. So in a sense, the upside right now is enormous if we can get this right. At the Global Partnership for Education, uh, GPE, the organization that I lead, our job is to help deliver quality education at scale in some of the poorest countries of the world. We work with, at the moment, 65 countries. Guy, you're absolutely right, it's about to go up to 89. Uh, and we work with those countries to help build stronger education systems at scale, capable of delivering quality education. At the moment, our work is mostly funded by donors, including the Australian government, who has historically been a very strong partner uh, and supporter for aid, uh, and we're very grateful for that. But we are also, at the moment, looking for additional sources of resource, uh, not just uh, international donors. Uh, they are our main sponsors right now, but from all other sectors. We've met with the business community. We've met with philanthropy. They also have an important part to play. One very important part of our business model is also working very closely with the developing countries themselves to get more of their own money into education. Uh, over time, business, countries have to support their own education systems, and much about the work that we do is to create the incentives to encourage countries to put much more of their own money uh, into education. We ought to be asking ourselves the question, why? Why should donors, why should philanthropies, why should governments, why should people be supporting education? And this is the question that is, in many ways, what's being debated right now as foreign aid, and in many ways, foreign aid as a tool of foreign policy is being debated. Foreign aid is under considerable scrutiny in many countries. Uh, we've seen it. And there's nothing wrong with that scrutiny. But at the heart of it, we have to realize that our world is very interconnected. And what that means is that what happens in the Americas, what happens in the Asia-Pacific region, what happens in Africa, what happens in the Middle East, it matters to all of us. It affects us all. We have an obligation to support the most vulnerable people, and that is why GPE exists. But we realize that focused investment in human potential is also an investment in our own prosperity and our own security. So there is a direct linkage between how we work with countries that are in crisis, how we work with countries that are not well off, how we work in countries that are, do not have the, the great resources that we have, all of that affects the countries that are uh, at the upper end of the scale. Education is central to ending extreme poverty, to improving health outcomes, to fighting disease, to creating jobs, to creating sustainable growth. It helps foster relationships between countries, and it is a significant contributor to long-term stability. And if we really want to reduce the growing numbers of people who leave their countries every year to seek opportunities that are better elsewhere, we need to make sure that their children have access to a good quality education at home in their own countries. I would hope, being in a university, that all of you are convinced about the importance of education and of meeting SDG 4. 
which is our SDG. I hope all of you know what the SDGs are. Uh, SDG 4 is ensuring inclusive and equitable quality education and lifelong learning opportunities for all by 2030. For those of you who are real students of the SDGs and who compare the SDGs to the MDGs, uh, you'll know that SDG 4 is a much more uh, ambitious, complicated, uh, difficult goal than MDG 2 was, uh, which was simply to get children into primary school. So those of you who are in the SDG 4 space know that we have a huge job to do. At GPE, we have adopted SDG 4 as our vision, and we are completely focused and committed to helping to achieve it. Two years in, already, 2017, we know that progress is way too slow. We already know that, and we only have 13 years left, which will go by that like that. And if we're going to get to the goals in 13 years, we know that business as usual is not going to is not going to work, and that we have to work in an entirely different way. For those of you who may be less familiar with my organization, GPE, uh, we are the only global fund that is exclusively dedicated to helping improve education outcomes in developing countries. And specifically, we focus on learning and we focus on much more equitably available education. Just as important as the fact that we're a fund is the fact that we are a partnership, and we mean it. The GPE Board of Directors, which is sort of a proxy for everybody who's involved, includes donors, developing countries, international institutions, we have three UN agencies on our board, uh, civil society, the business community, philanthropy. Each one of these constituencies has a real voice in our decision making and a real role to play in resolving all the problems ahead of us. As a business model for a development organization already, you can tell that it's quite different from some of the top-down models of the past where a few donors got together and decided what the priorities were and told everybody else what to do. We don't do that. We work with the countries to put them in the driver's seat. Across the partnership, we know one thing, which is that education is essential to the well-being of citizens and the future of societies. But too often, we see that the countries that we work with lack the funding and the technical infrastructure to deliver a quality education to all of their children. And we see this is particularly true in the poorest countries where you've got remote populations and particularly those that are affected by conflict and instability. Uh, we spend a lot of time, almost 50% of our dollars goes to fragile, what we call fragile and conflict affected countries. This is Yemen, Chad, Somalia, Central African Republic, uh, and a number of others. Let me give you some numbers that portray how bad a problem this is right now. Globally, we are facing a learning crisis. There are more than 264 million children of primary and secondary school age right now that are out of school, 264 million. I think if I did my math right, that's more than 10 times the size of the population of Australia. There are an additional 130 million who cannot read or write even though they're in primary school. So they're not getting any of the quality and the output of education that they deserve to even be successful at lower secondary school, which we would call, I guess we would call middle school, you all might call it something slightly different. Uh, without immediate and radical action to fix this problem, we're gonna wake up at 2030 and find out that there are going to be hundreds of millions of children who are completely ill-equipped to get a job in what is an increasingly globalized and technologically driven 
work environment. Those numbers have been estimated. Right now, we estimate that there will be 1.6 billion youth on the globe uh, in 2030, huge percentage of the world's population. And at the rate we're going, over 800 of million of them will not have the skills to get the jobs that they need and to be able to thrive in the remainder of the 21st century. The result is that hundreds of millions of children are going to be left behind. They're never going to acquire the skills they need to break out of poverty, uh, to earn a living, to take care of their own children, to become contributing members of their society. And what we're going to wind up with is countries who are deprived of talent, but we're also going to wind up with horrible inequity. And what happens in a world where there are huge divides between those who have and those who have not, it's going to breed discontent. It's going to breed tension. I'm sorry to say it is going to breed increasing incidents of terrorism. And that is going to spill across borders. And we're already seeing that. And education, or lack of equitable education opportunity, is at the heart of that problem. So this is a very uh, pressing, urgent crisis problem right now. It is not something that's academic. It is not something that's sort of out in a different place. It's here. It's in the United States. It's in Europe. It's in Japan. Every country in the globe has a stake in helping to solve this problem. Our mission at GPE is to help solve it. We draw on all of the talents and all of the perspectives of everybody around our board. And what I'd like to do now is go into a bit more detail about how we actually work. It's pretty interesting. The first thing we do is focus on financing and focusing on increasing financing. Financing for education, regardless of what source you're talking about, is falling way short. We look at ODA budgets, Overseas Development Assistance, which is aid budgets. Uh, the policy level that a lot of countries have signed up to is 0.7% of GDP. There's hardly any countries that are actually reaching that level. Uh, we also look at money coming from multilateral development banks. We look at money coming from the countries themselves. Uh, we also look at money coming from the private sector. If you look at all of that money going into education, there are huge financing gaps. Uh, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. The second thing that we work on is what we call strengthening education systems. This isn't just building a school here or sending a box of textbooks there. It's looking at the totality of how an education system functions and putting the reforms and the strengthening in that will be there for the long term. National governments must be in the lead of this process, determining what their priorities are, what their curriculums need to include, how they want to work through their issues like languages, for example, and really being in the driver's seat and owning the process of systemic reform. We've learned, for example, uh, from the work that's been done in global health, that if we want to have systemic reform over time, we have to focus on how the systems function. The third area that we focus on is innovation. We need to disrupt how the sector functions by bringing in new ideas, new partners, and recognizing that what we've done in the past, looking at the trend lines, is not, to get, not going to get us where we need to be. Let me go back to financing, and I'm going to be very blunt about this point. Right now, we are not even investing anything close to what we need to in, in education in developing countries to get the job done. Uh, a new report from UNESCO, uh, UNESCO is the UN agency that focuses on education, has told us that the amount of international aid, for example, that's been allocated to education 
has fallen every year for the last six years, even though aid levels are slightly going up. That should be a wake-up call to everybody that you know, aid levels going down for education ought to really be a red flag. We are, at my organization, going to try to start bridging this gap. And right now, I mentioned earlier, we're in what we call our replenishment campaign, which is our word for refinancing. Uh, and we have set ourselves some very ambitious targets to try to reverse some of the trends on the financing gap. We've set out a goal of becoming an organization that will deliver $2 billion a year by 2020. That's going to require a significantly step up in the amount of money that we have now. Uh, one of the reasons we're in Australia, we were in Japan earlier in the week, where I travel a lot right now as I go knock on the door of every government that I can get to meet with me, asking for them to give us more money. If we are successful with our replenishment goals, it will enable the partnership to support 89 countries. Uh, that is the bi a big geography, but I think it's the right geography. It's home to 870 million children who, are, who live in those countries, but more importantly, that geography is home to almost 80% of the children who are not in school. So we are really focused on where the problem is. If we're successful in raising the money that we're looking for, we'll be able to put 25 million children into school uh, through primary and lower secondary school, and almost 15 million of those will live in uh, fragile and conflict-affected countries where the problem is particularly pressing. We are very optimistic about these numbers for three reasons, and I wanted to just uh, outline those for you. First of all, we know our business model works. Uh, we've started to get very, very focused on our results. We've just issued our first results report, and it's telling us that we're very much on the right track. We really focus on accountability, and that gives me real confidence that by getting all of our partners involved and really focusing on whether or not everyone is doing what they should be doing, we'll start moving in the right direction. And we have all kinds of frameworks that help us with the concept of accountability. We also measure results at all levels of the work that we do. Uh, about 18 months ago, we developed what we call our theory of change, which is sort of a fancy way of, of dissecting the how of the work that we do. Uh, and we're very deliberate and focused on understanding how all the steps have to fit together. And in fact, we measure every single one of them. There are 37 numbers that we follow uh, to tell us whether or not we're on the right track. And let me just digress for a second, because I myself used to be uh, in the commercial sector. I was a banker. One of the big differences about working in the private sector and working in the social sector is if you work in the private sector, and if, for example, uh, your company is publicly listed, it's pretty easy to tell whether or not you're doing a good job. It's, does your share price go up? In the social sector, you don't have that. It's much harder to tell if you're doing a good job. And what we've done with this results framework is we're trying to contend with that problem and say, OK, what are the results? How do we measure them? Are we on track? Where are we not on track? Where are the gaps? And what are we going to do about it? And we have that discussion with all these countries that are around the table at our board meeting. So it's pretty powerful. So I'm optimistic that our focus on strengthening systems combined with how we're organized, combined with really focusing on results, is quite powerful. Let me go into a bit more depth about what I talk about, about our work at the country level. Our first step at working with a government is to help them put in place what we call an education sector plan. That's really an education strategy. And we spend a lot of time working with a country to make sure the strategy is sound. In addition to bringing together a lot of the technical work, 
the education sector plans have a very important sort of political function in that they rally all the players around a common vision and it really puts the, the countries themselves in the lead of determining their own education priorities. Very, very important. Education is a public good and having a country sign up to an education sector plan uh, is a way for them, for governments to really say to their citizens, we are accountable for better education. So there's quite an important uh, accountability and political aspect to it. What we do is help countries ensure that they've got the support, both technical and financial, to get these education sector plans into place. With a quality education sector plan in place, governments can then apply for GPE's money. We provide grant funding. Uh, at the moment, it's between 450 and $500 million a year. We give grants to between 10 and 12, sometimes more, sometimes less, countries a year. Uh, the highest grant that we can give at the moment is $100 million. Uh, in some countries, $100 million is a huge amount of money. And in many of the countries, we are the biggest player on the block. These grants, these applications, there's a very rigorous application process. Uh, they must have a plan to systematically collect data on whether or not the learning outcomes in the countries are heading in the right direction. It's another way that we really are investing in accountability systems. Another very important part of our business model is that if, if we put our money on the table, governments must commit first to put their money on the table and keep it there. And we have a goal, uh, which is that we want governments to put 20% of their domestic budgets into education, and we monitor it. And that is a significant source of money. As important as international aid is, uh, domestic resources from countries really cover the lion's share of the cost of education. And if we are looking at the quality and the sustainability and the durability of education over the long term, it's government money that has to stay there and do all the right things. But we keep track of this 20% uh, quite closely, and when we see government money tailing down, we get nervous. Uh, and we have conversations with those ministers of finance and say, we don't like this trend. Because uh, the problem is that you don't want the international money to displace uh, the domestic money. Let me give you a, a very telling example of how this model works in a, situ a country that we're actually uh, reasonably optimistic about. It's the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's a country that's had a lot of historic challenges. Uh, they joined GPE in 2012. Uh, at the time, they were putting only 9% of their domestic resources into education. Uh, the number is now 17.8% in 2014. Uh, and we expect that by 2018, it will be up to 20%. And if you look at, if you map all the countries where you see most of the out-of-the-world children, Democratic Republic of the Congo has a huge number of out-of-school children, and that increase from 9% up to 20% will, will provide an enormous amount of resources to get those out-of-school children into school. So the notion of using financing as a lever, as a source of reform, as a way of trying to contend with the number of out-of-school children, we believe is very, very powerful. Let me tell you some information about Cambodia, close to home, and I know a country that's of uh, real interest. Uh, here. Uh, we've worked very closely with that country to improve learning performance. Uh, one of the most cost-effective ways that a country can work on improving learning performance is investing in what we call early childhood or pre-primary education. Uh, there's all kinds of data that show that there are huge payoffs if you get children into school early in terms of preparedness and being able to be learning uh, later on in school. 
Uh, now we see that Cambodia, due to the work that we've done to that with them, are enrolling uh, significant numbers of three to five-year-olds in pre-primary school in that country. Uh, when you talk to Minister Naran, who's the current education minister in Cambodia, he is very focused on early childhood learning, uh, and we're delighted with that. And we think that we've played a very helpful role in getting them on that pathway. We've also funded, we haven't really talked about this uh, much, but dis children with disabilities are also a huge uh, challenge in education because they are often kept out of education for reasons that are completely fixable, like kids who can't hear very well or kids uh, who need glasses. Um, we have helped Cambodia put in a vision screening program uh, that has now um, easily made children get be able to get glasses and get to school. And that in and of itself is a fairly simple fix and it will also have a positive impact on the overall results there. I'm also very pleased to say that we're about, we're working very closely with Myanmar. Uh, I know that's another country that's very important to Australia. Uh, we've started working very closely with their officials to assess their education needs. Uh, and we hope to be able to soon make a formal announcement that they will be joining the partnership uh, in a few weeks' time. And by doing so, they will soon be eligible for a substantial grant to begin to help uh, rectify some of the education challenges in that country. Uh, I often think what Aung San Suu Kyi says, which is that education is one of the major challenges in our country. And I'd love to be able to say that GPE is going to be able to play a role in helping them with that. Uh, we've also helped Papua New Guinea. Uh, with the, really repairing the basic education infrastructure in that country that's gone through uh, so many years of challenge. Uh, we're working on a program there called Read PNG, and it's beginning to show some promising results. We've also had a long-standing relationship with East Timor. Uh, they've been a member of the partnership since 2005, and I know another uh, country that's close to you all and, and Australia cares about. Another thing that we've done that's innovative, also in the region, uh, with many of the small Pacific Island states, they have particular challenges in the delivery of education. They're, you all know this, you live here. Um, they're very remote. Uh, they have very uh, small populations on many of the islands that are very far from one another. And it really presents a lot of logistical challenges And how do you begin to think about reforming education systems. Uh, we've introduced a new way of working with those countries. It's sort of working through umbrella types of organizations is modeled off of um, some similar work that we've done in the Caribbean. It's early days, uh, but I do want to let you know that it's a part of the world that we care deeply about, and we're going to really keep at it until we can try to see some real uh, moves there. Uh, we've also worked with Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, uh, who are beginning to work with us in accessing a particular grant that we have to begin to look at some of the analytics necessary to get this education sector uh, planning process going and hope to report back uh, on how that's going. Uh, so once education sector plans are in place, I've talked about this, countries become eligible for our grant money. Uh, one of the things that we've done, uh, we started it about two and a half years ago, is we've reformed how we provide our grants, and we've made it very results-based. Uh, so for 30% of the grant money that a country could get, they have to sign up for an indicator that says, we will achieve X in order to get the grant money. And we will not give the grant money until we see those indicators achieved. And there has to be one in each of three very important areas. Improved learning outcomes, uh, improved equity of education, which is availability of education, particularly in very far away places or to parts of the population that aren't, that are often excluded, like girls or kids with disabilities. 
And the third area of the indicator is improved efficiency of the system, which is how well does the whole education system operate, use money, train teachers, deploy uh, resources where they need to be deployed. So we have really woven in a results-based approach to how we do our work. Uh, we think it will enable money to be spent better, and it will really keep the focus on the whole process uh, of reform. Uh, we've just issued our first results report. Uh, the early results are promising. We're beginning to see some real moves in a couple of areas. We're very excited about that. But we're also seeing where we need to put more muscle. Uh, so it's been very, uh, very valuable to have that results focus. One of the areas that we're seeing some promising, promising results is in reducing the ratio, it's very important for better quality outcomes, of the number of teachers per student. Um, in many of the countries that I've traveled in, you see, not exaggerating, 80 to 100 students in a classroom with one teacher. So you can just imagine 80 or 100 sort of five and six year olds, seven and eight year olds, and one teacher, and one blackboard, and no books, how those children will learn. They're not gonna learn very much. But in many countries, we're now seeing that number down to 40. Now, in Australia, in the United States, 40 is still too many. But if you compare it to 100, it's better. So we're beginning to really see some benefits of this approach uh, that we're taking. We're also seeing in a couple of countries some real success stories. Afghanistan is obviously a country that many of us know has huge challenges. We're beginning to see some real moves in hiring uh, female teachers, which encourages then more girls to go to school. And with the challenges they have in that country, that's an important issue. Uh, Nepal, we're beginning to see reductions in the number of children who are not in school, uh, even following the earthquake. Um, so things are beginning to improve in some countries, and we're beginning to see some real progress. Let me talk a little bit about innovation, because while we are uh, reasonably convinced that the fundamentals of our business model are sound, we also know that if we're going to hit our overall goals, we have to change how we work. Uh, so we have to look for opportunities to do things differently, uh, to disrupt the sort of normal way of going about this, disrupt the normal way of doing aid. Aid models have now completely changed. It is no longer just, and should not be, just you know, several rich countries writing checks and giving them to poor countries and telling the poor countries what to do. That doesn't last very long. We've got to break out and do things differently. While we still need lots of core funding from the donor governments, uh, we've also now built in new flexible ways of taking in new money and focusing it on particular areas of our work. Um, and that's a new thing for us. We're very excited about it. And by allowing uh, other types of donors, whether or not they're philanthropies or businesses, to give us money and say, we want to help you with this and we want to help you with that, we think we're going to be in a stronger position to bring in new ideas. We've already started to do this uh, in a number of areas, uh, looking at early childhood work, looking at gender work, uh, and there's a number of other areas um, that will come into play. We're also in the process of designing what we call a knowledge and innovation exchange. Uh, when we, in fact, when we were in Canberra earlier in the week, we visited with um, the Department for uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade's own version of their knowledge and innovation exchange. I think their name is slightly different, but very close. Uh, and they were sharing some ideas that they had been developing really interesting stuff. Uh, we're very excited about that whole idea. And as we design and develop it, um, if you all are interested, we'll get you the details. Uh, we've also are looking at new ways to raise money. 
Uh, and we've introduced a new thing called our multiplier fund, which puts in place a specific set of incentives to get more non-official money into education sectors. Uh, in going to 89 countries, uh, we've added this new way of, of raising money, and if we raise the money that, we're a, that we would like to raise, it will allow us to do work in Indonesia, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, uh, and a number of other countries, but I know that, that, that those three are of particular interest to you all. Uh, we're excited about, excited about it, and we think it will begin, uh, begin to bring in other resources to education. We're also very excited about some emerging conversations that we're having with the business community. And we want to reach out to the business community not only for financial support, which we're always interested in, but also for the talent and the ideas that they can bring to us for how to do our work better. Uh, there's some interesting early conversations that are starting in terms of uh, how do we collect and manage and analyze education data better. Uh, one of the challenges we see in education is just the basics and data are not available, and so it makes the policy formulation uh, process very, very difficult. We're having some early conversations with some companies about that and are hopeful that those are going to go in the right direction. Another thing that we're exploring is, uh, is uh, one may not often think about this, but the concept of looking at working with the insurance industry to provide insurance cover for countries whose education systems get wiped out overnight by natural disasters. So I mentioned Nepal uh, a second ago. The Nepalese earthquake knocked out schools in parts of that country, almost all of them, and those children will not go back to school in those regions. Uh, and the, the insurance industry, uh, principally prom um, prompted by climate change, has begun to offer forms of insurance to, to uh, developing countries to help them to have money readily available when there are these shocks. Uh, we're looking at whether or not we can do that with education. It's a very interesting set of conversations. So we believe that GPE uh, is now in as good a position as it ever has been to make a dent at achieving the goals of SDG 4. We're very excited about it. Uh, we think we're on the right track, but we continue to need as much help as we can get. What does this mean for Australia? GPE's upcoming replenishment is in a moment for every one of our partners to step up and step up big and say, yes, we agree with you. We agree that the education crisis is urgent. We cannot wait to get behind it, and we're going to support you. We need Australia. We need all of our donors to take a fresh look at the challenge and say, yes, we're going to help you, and we're going to help you big. So anything that any of you can do to talk to any of your parliamentarians to encourage them to support us, we'd be very, very grateful. Australia has already been a very strong supporter of our organization, not only financially, but they've also given us a lot of technical support. Uh, and so naturally, you can imagine, that's really one of the main reasons we've been here this week, is to talk to all the officials in Canberra and say, you got to help us. But we're also uh, looking for support from the business community. I don't know what kinds of alumni networks that the business school here has, but um, any time that you can talk to any successful corporations and say, you really ought to be paying attention to what the education circumstances are and help these guys, we would be grateful. And we think that businesses are real stakeholders in better education outcomes. Uh, it is, and so the, you, know, you ought to be saying, well, why? Why should businesses care about education? There's many reasons why businesses should care about education. One is that they need talented people to employ. Uh, two is that they need certainty. Businesses do not like instability. And lack of education opportunity 
creates instability. Uh, they also need good markets. They also need middle classes of people to buy things. Uh, and we believe that businesses have a real interest in supporting uh, the work that we do. So just to recap, uh, we think we have the pieces in place to get the job done. Uh, we have a real opportunity to really make the world aware of the problem. They're beginning to become aware of it. Many people are beginning to realize that without SDG 4 being successful, the other 16 SDGs aren't going to get accomplished. I often like to say, if you read those other 16 SDGs, which are also important, people have to know how to read and write and do math if we're going to accomplish the other 16 SDGs. So SDG 4 runs across all of it. I often think back when I worked in global health uh, in the 2000s. Uh, I worked at Gavi, which is an organization, uh, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, that is kind of like GPE. And it was created because health standards at the time were really faltering. And nobody at the time thought that over a 15-year period, you could really ever make a difference in terms of uh, curing vaccine pre or preventing vaccine-preventable diseases in developing countries, and really making progress on uh, getting treatment for AIDS and HIV uh, out to the countries that need it, uh, and reducing the rate of, neo of uh, maternal and neonatal deaths, and many other very pressing health challenges at the time. Fifteen years later, there's been huge progress made in all of those areas, and that's because in the early 2000s, People got together, they formed organizations like GPE, like Gavi, like the Global Fund. They got everybody in the room and they said, we can't live with this anymore, we have to fix it. I think education is at the same moment now. My organization is at the heart of the problem. We've got everybody that we need in the room to fix the problem. We can't wait another minute to solve the education problems in the world. And so I'm very optimistic about where we're gonna go but we need the help of everybody to get there. So with commitment, ambition, help from everybody, we gotta go for it. Uh, and we've gotta figure out new ways to innovate. I love, would love the idea of business schools thinking about how can we do this all differently. If you come up with good ideas, let me know. Anyway, let me stop there. I wanna congratulate Australia for the great environment that you all have here. You're clearly, as a country, very aware of what's around you. Uh, you're very engaged. We need that, and we need your help uh, in all the work that we do. So thank you for inviting me, uh, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you all might have. Let me answer both of those. Um, we have a very specific ask in mind for the Australian government. We've met with senior officials uh, on both sides of politics this week, and we've been very specific about it. And we've laid out all the reasons why uh, we think that they should support us. Uh, obviously, we're at the beginning of a process. I know that uh, your organization has been very helpful uh, here, but also globally for us, sort of in a uh, an advocacy process, and we would welcome your help in that. Um, uh, is there resistance? You know, this replenishment and any uh, international endeavor right now is not going to face a bowl of cherries environment. There are problems all over the place. Uh, so we cannot take any of this for granted. It is not going to be easy. Uh, but 
because we have done so much work on our business model, because of the nature of the organization that we have, because of the support that we are receiving uh, globally in terms of attention, advocacy, and because I do think people are beginning to realize that this crisis is no joke and we have to fix it. I'm optimistic about uh, our outcome, but we have to go all at it uh, to get the resources that we need. Uh, Julia is a fantastic asset uh, for GPE. I was just having an interview with, where are you? I don't see you. Anyway, there you are. Uh, and I was going on and on about what a delight uh, it is to work with Julia. She knows the substance of the issue backwards and forwards, having been a minister of education. Uh, she's um, remarkably talented. She's remarkably passionate about the issue. She, at a global level, uh, is in high demand, uh, given all of her um, thoughts and approaches to the issue. Uh, she's put a huge spotlight on uh, the challenges that I've just been talking about. Everyone loves her to pieces. She rolls up her sleeves. She answers emails like this. She's fantastic. Uh, there is bipartisan support in this government for education. Uh, so we are not sensing any uh, issues whatsoever given Julia's involvement. In fact, I think it's been quite a positive. Um, so we are just delighted to have her and uh, hope that we can keep her as long as possible because she's a rock star and we love her. Who else has a question? Um, thanks so much for your talk. My name is Matthew. I'm an academic at the School of Education here at the University of Sydney. Ah. You can teach us. No, no, no. Okay, thanks. Um, I guess my question is more around the lines of aid architecture and how GPE works um, in some of the contexts where there are a variety of other stakeholders, the USAIDs and BIFIDs and you know, UN agencies, um, and just GPE's approach to coordinating and trying to perhaps reduce some of the duplication that I think sometimes happens with different initiatives. All right, so for those of you who don't know what the word aid architecture means, uh, what it is, is if you were to draw like an, like an org chart or an organogram of every organization that is involved in education, that would be called the aid architectures, like who does what and why and how does it all fit together. Um, every one of those organizations that you just mentioned are on our board uh, and we work with them very closely. Uh, the last thing that we want to do is duplicate. Uh, one of the things, if one, if one was to make a broad generalization about uh, some of those organizations, and they're all fantastic partners. Uh, what they tend to do is focus on a piece of an education challenge, you know, reading, or, uh, or better access to schools from a disability perspective, which is all great. Uh, but we focus on whether or not the system as a whole is conceived of, constructed, and financed properly, taking into consideration all of those things. Because uh, the last thing you want is uh, sort of disconnectedness at the country level between what one agency might do and another agency might do. And in fact, being part of GPE and being part of the education sector planning process, talking about how budgeting works and how it's going to meet all the priorities, actually reduces the fragmentation and the duplication. Uh, we do work very closely with three UN organizations, UNESCO, UNICEF, and UNHCR, and they're all on our board. So for example, I was just in Geneva a few weeks ago, UNHCR is the expert on refugee movements, migration, what the challenges are. We are not going to duplicate their know-how on how to 
really understand those challenges and, and how you work and provide better education for those uh, kids. Uh, but we can bring them in and they can help us. And that's exactly what we do. So we think that our business model, given, you know, partnership is not just rhetoric for us. It's, it's really um, how we work. Uh, and we think that the way that we do work reduces duplication. The other thing is it's really good for the countries uh, because they get sort of a one-stop shop for all of the technical knowledge that they need. And it puts them in the driver's seat. And they're not sort of um, distorted to one priority or another. So I hope that answers your question. Cultural apprehension towards education uh, is a big obstacle that you have to overcome. So, how do you do so? I think it is, um, and I think it presents itself um, in different ways. Uh, in many countries, you see that there are um, there's sort of an acceptance that you know girls once they get to a certain age, they shouldn't go to school. Often, that's a function of poverty, not so much a function of uh, social mores. Uh, but often it is a function of, of um, cultural choices. And, uh, and there's lots of, uh, there's other versions of that. And this is where local advocacy and local, you know, working with civil society groups is a very important part of the work that we do. We've actually are, um, we've had three rounds of what we call a civil society education fund, specifically to support uh, civil society advocacy points of accountability groups in the country to point out where the problems are. Uh, we're about to get to version four of this. We're calling it something slightly different, the Advocacy and Social Accountability Fund. And it's to really create accountability networks below the federal level of government to really hold up a mirror to the government to show them where the issues are. Often it's an awareness problem. Uh, there's some countries that just don't know why some of the choices that are being made are necessarily not the best choices. So it, it's, it's not so much in some countries a negative thing, it's just an awareness thing that we have to build. Yeah, I'm sorry? I'm sorry? Yeah, and you know, one of the things that's, um, there's two things that are are very eye-opening. Often governments increasingly are putting in place a ministry of gender and it will be headed by a woman and that has a very sort of eye-opening effect across other parts of the government about where uh, where barriers really exist. The other thing that will have a, uh, a very interesting effect is where if there's a minister of education if he or she has daughters that sort of is, has an eye-opening effect, and they often do. Um, so there are ways, and I'm just talking about you know, some cultural barriers to educating girls, which are obvious uh, in many, many countries. Um, but there are, it, often it's just a point of awareness, and you just have to break through those. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts or observations on the international community commitment to fulfilling the SDGs as compared to the MDGs, whether there's still that desire to achieve these ambitious goals? Ah, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, and for those who may not know, the MDGs only apply to the developing countries and the SDGs apply to everybody. 
uh, I think all 193 who signed up. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch that, actually. I think it's a little too early to predict. I'd like to say that the answer is yes. Uh, I think that there are, you know, if you exclude the United States for the moment, you know, the degree of commitment around the climate accords is, that was quite remarkable. Uh, I hope the U.S. comes back in. Um, uh, so I, it's, early to, it's too early to tell. I think the countries are beginning to just grapple with, what does this mean? Because it's a whole different playing field than it was with the MDGs. We'll have to see. I wish I could say yes, but it's 13 years from now. Hi there. I was just wondering, have any of the countries that GPs approached to sign on with the program, have any of the governments sort of not really had the political will to prioritize education? And if so, how do you sort of convince them that it is in their best interest to do so? For example, I'm very glad to hear about Afghanistan being part of the program because I was in a talk with NSF a few months ago and they highlighted one of the issues that they found in the country in getting funding for both health and education was the country was very concerned about security and a lot of funding ended up going into there. So in a lot of these fragile countries where they're not quite stable, it seems like that might be a bit of an issue or concern for them. Yeah, I think it's, if you're working in as many countries as we are, um, you know, I, it's, you know, we're not going to say every single country is equally committed to education. Uh, some are and some are less committed. Uh, I haven't come across one yet that has said, I'm not interested at all. Uh, now, what we do see is there are countries uh, who are in really states of crisis, who have a hard time just getting the resources moving in the right direction. Uh, but that's because of circumstances that are you know, not within their control. Uh, but, you know, by the same token, you see countries that are quite willful, even during times of, um, you know, significant difficulty, really putting the will into education. Uh, one country uh, that I like to point to as an example of that is Chad. Uh, Chad already is a very, very, very low-income, poor country. Uh, they've got refugees coming into Chad from almost every, every one of its surrounding regions. Uh, they've had a lot of people coming in from the Boko Haram crisis in Nigeria. Uh, they realized that with all these refugees coming into their borders, it was going to breed real, even more tension by not providing some form of education for the refugee kids. And they went to the UN uh, Human Appeals, the OCHA appeals process, asked for some money for the refugees. Uh, the OCHA appeals process was only able to give them a little bit of money. They came to us and they said, can you help? We looked at our criteria and we said yes. And we gave them money to build schools for the refugees. So that's an example where even with you know, significant challenges, they care. Uh, so some countries care less, some countries uh, care more, and then you have to go visit. You've got to go talk to the head of state or whoever I can get a meeting with uh, and remind them why this is such an important um, part of their future and then just keep working on it. But I'm not yet to meet with a country who's sort of not interested. That's encouraging. Hi, I'm Leo. I'm studying my MBA here at the moment. Um, so my question is, have you looked at ways to monetize the competencies that you have, things like you, know, you could do some consulting or like using your analytics 
in ways that could be monetized? Uh, no, I mean we're we're uh, sort of nonprofit in nature, um, and we so what we do our our sort of financial model, if you will, is um, we you know we try to raise revenue uh, from as many people as we can get, and we're at a big sort of juncture, and that most of our revenue is coming from donors uh, and well, sovereign donors. We're now trying to diversify our revenue line. Uh, we try to uh, deliver most of our funding uh, to countries and keep a very, very low administrative cost. Uh, and then we try to create value. Uh, our bottom line, even though we're not a for-profit, our bottom line is doing well with the money that we have, well over the cost of what it takes for us to do it. Um, so we we are out, you know we are we give away what we do, uh, but it is not without expectations of getting commitments from the countries that we work with uh, to do their part. Um, so it's a business model that wouldn't necessarily lend itself to um, to what you're talking about, even though there's a lot of merit to what you're talking about. Now, what we we often hire, uh, lots of them, in fact, uh, you know, private sector consultancies to help us with all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, we don't really hire, you know, the really, really sort of top drawer ones because they're expensive, but there's a whole lot of other ones that we hire. Um, so we work quite closely with the private sector on a range of things. We don't really we give away our services, but we, with expectations that good things will happen. We monitor, and so what we do is uh, is we actually give the money to what we call a grant agent, which is like a fiscal agent in a country, uh, and there's all kinds of specifications about how money can be spent, and then we monitor that. We also monitor results. Uh, we also mo there's all kinds of things that we monitor, uh, but there's a there's a tricky question here, uh, which is that. If we want governments to take responsibility for better education outcomes in their countries, and that's the end game here, we have to work with governments and begin to build the capacity in government systems so that they can do the job. And another um, number that we measure is the extent to which all of the international donors are working and relying on government systems and beginning to trust government systems but working through issues where they exist. Uh, so we want to work with governments and help their ministries actually get the job done. But we, you have to monitor, monitor, monitor. challenging um, 
And often the, one of the biggest challenges is actually having the local capacity to help us supplement the delivery of services. Uh, I mean, we are the brand agents yes. for um, the Pacific work and the, the, the work in Greek PNG. Um, but we really need help in bringing the boots on the floor and helping us work at the local level. So how would you um, strengthen um, our convincing arguments to bring more non-for-profit, specialized non-for-profit to this part of the world where it's very difficult to have economies of scale uh, given the remoteness and the accessibility issues? Uh, you were a business person yourself. What, how would, what would be a more selling argument to the big, large NGOs? I think that the, the challenge in the, you, you've hit the nail on the head, the challenge in the islands is the remoteness. And so we have to figure out how to get the right balance between, um, well, before I answer the question, let me just acknowledge how closely we work at the World Bank. We're very good friends with you guys, and we're very grateful to all that you help us with. Um, but we have to get right the balance between a very sort of customized approach in all the islands, which is very expensive, and more of a wholesale approach to working in the islands. And that's, I think we've got to get that balance right. Um, I'm not familiar enough with all the NGOs that are actually working or could be working island to island to island to figure out what their individual concerns are. But, uh, and we also have to work on how we build ca the capacity of the ministries. I think that that's um, an immediate uh, issue because there's real differences there and that will begin to help. Uh, you mentioned that um, a new source of funding that you're going to look forward to in the future is corporates and private philanthropy. Um, with the potential for moods to change around um, both governments and corporates sort of looking at a more localised level and um, being a bit more nationalistic, what challenges does that pose for funding in a global context? Uh, we, we've defined the issue slightly differently, but you're raising an important issue, and we would call it distortion. Um, so the, we are a multilateral fund, uh, and one of the benefits of that is that it avoids, for the most part, what we call a cherry-picking problem, which is one government or one funder coming in and saying, well, I don't care about all those countries. I want to work on that one. Uh, and that, that does not help. And we, have, in fact, have a very sort of um, uh, robust sort of allocation formula to make sure that the money all goes in the right places. Now, the, the challenge with that, though, and it's particularly if we're looking at an environment where aid budgets are not going sharply up, um, is that we may be leaving money on the table that might have a particular interest in a particular region, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But too much of it is a problem. So, and also, you know, other, you know, foundations, anybody may be able to say, well, I only care about this part of your problem and I don't care about the rest of it. If we only function that way, we're going to wind up with a random set of outcomes and not be working in the most difficult places. Uh, we'll be working in what we call the darling countries and not, you know, the really forgotten about countries. So we've put in place a, a policy that actually seeks to draw a balance uh, between money into our core fund, which is allocated according to you know, needs, and, but yet introducing some flexibility for 
a government or a corporate or a foundation to say, I really want to help you with that. But that has to be basically consistent with our overall approach. So we try to seek this balance because we do have to be at a certain level open to being opportunistic. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I talked about you know the data challenges that we have with education. If you know if a if a company has the answer to that question and wants to come in and say we're going to give you the answer to that question, we should be all ears about that and not be concerned about that. So it's really a question of balance and getting that right and not being uh, distortive. If if a government wants to come along and says I only want to give you uh, money for the richest boys that live in the richest neighborhoods in the richest country that you work in, and I don't care about anybody else, that doesn't feel right either. So we have to get the balance right. Hello, um, my name is Verity Firth. I'm from UGS. I'm actually a ring-in. Oh, um, well, you sent me the email. Yeah, I sent you the email. Yes, I nice. I used to be a politician, but I am now. Nice to... Um, <laughs> <of> that. <laughs> Um, nice yeah. to meet you. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, the, for the question I asked, so in part of my role at UTS, and I think that an example even at um, Sydney University here during Queen's uh, Night, is about um, universities better understanding the role they can play in a collaborative, collaborative and partnership sense in civil society with NGOs, not-for-profits, capacity building, the, the sorts of work that you do. And I've recently just actually come back from a visit to the United States where I saw some amazing oh, right. collaborations happening out of the US universities um, at what they call an anchor institution movement where they're actually doing a whole lot of really intense work in their own communities, but also the sense that as public purpose institutions, they have a much greater role to play. And so I'm interested in, do you have any good collaborations with universities? Um, and do you ever, I know that you're probably working in the earlier childhood education space, but do you have any sense of how the university sector is going in the countries that you work? Are there opportunities there as well? Well, on the, on the collaborations, uh, we don't yet, but I think we should. Uh, because I think that universities, uh, I mean, they're going to be naturally interested in what we care about, but they are, uh, they're going to be, hotbeds of good ideas, research, testing. Uh, and so I'd love, I'd love to be able to, I, I haven't had the bandwidth yet to figure that out, but I'd love to because there's, you know, you guys, Harvard, I mean, th there's no end. Um, our chief technical officer comes from OISI at the University of Toronto. I managed to steal her for a little while. And, uh, and so that's a natural linkage for us. But yes, I think it's something that we should absolutely uh, explore for sure. Um, in terms of looking at the adequacy of tertiary education, we do look, the answer is yes and no. We do look at how well education systems as a whole are doing, which would include tertiary, but we put our money into basic education because we really think that getting children sort of starting on, what I often think about education as sort of a staircase, and you want children starting on the bottom stair in order to have you know, opportunities over time. Um, and where the inequities start is at the bottom. And so we want to get our money sort of in a, you know, in a leveling the playing field type of a way at the bottom. We don't really fund tertiary education. Now, we started funding 
lower secondary schools because we re, you know if you look at the there's been some pretty good progress in getting children into primary school and closing some of the gender gaps. Uh, the quality is still is an issue. But there's now a big difference between how well we've done with primary school and how we're doing with lower secondary school. And lower secondary school is really a problem. So that's why we've started putting some funding there. Think about Malala. Think about Malala. Uh, but in terms of funding tertiary school in these countries, we don't really. We don't really. I think if we had tons and tons of money and more and more, we might, but we don't. We focus on the primary levels. Alice, to what extent are you seeing ministries embracing technology as part of the solution to getting education out of scale as opposed to classrooms? And I would have thought by 2030, there are going to be really clever ways to get to everybody. Uh, it's mixed. It's mixed. I mean, in some countries, the connectivity and the electricity issues are so profound that, it, and just even the expense of connectivity, and even though a lot of people have mobile phones, they're not smartphones, uh, it's not really a, a sort of a systematic uh, type of um, solution. Uh, there, but you do see it used here and there. You know, you do see it used in um, for some management sort of responsibilities. I mean, for example, we're very good friends with the Minister of Education from Senegal. Uh, he's very closely involved with us. He always is showing me on his iPad where, how the school building is going in all the different districts, and he's got the whole thing wired. And so that's in interesting. Um, in Nairobi... Uh, USAID, with whom we work very closely, has a program called EGRA, Early Grade Reading, which uh, is, is somewhat tablet-based to help the teachers get, um, and they are, they're the school's teachers sort of get the instructional materials that they need to begin to monitor reading levels. Uh, I don't, over time it seems like it's an obvious solution, uh, but it has, I think we have to look at it in a way that is not I say it can't replace and it can't display. It can't displace and replace teachers for all the reasons that people know. It has to be an enhancement to how teachers can function. But we have to get over the infrastructure issues. So it's tricky. It's tricky. Um, Alex, also from the School of Education and Social Work. Um, Another person who could teach us. I've been really interested in, in there are so many questions, but one, one small one. Um, you mentioned how important education is across all 17 goals, and our discussions with Australia and the few um, four I've been to have really focused on how we can work in that integrated way, how do you get people communicating, um, and um, you've mentioned gender and, and conflict and a, a couple of the areas, but I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about um, the kinds of um, ways that you're engaging with other um, ministries and, and stakeholders and, and um, working sort of it to promote that recognition of the integration. Well, the two, there are, um, there's a few goals that are obviously clustered around one another. Uh, the gender goal in education and the health goal in education. Uh, and there, you know, increasingly, uh, I do think we need to talk to ministries about working together uh, so that we do, they don't have silos, but they also take advantage of you know, natural sort of delivery uh, synergies. Uh, so I do think that there are ways, but 
governments, you know, and you see the same thing in developed country governments, it's not easy because of government budgeting and just how governments work globally to all of a sudden say those two ministries have to work together. But, but they, that's a conversation that I think we should start having. I was in Malawi uh, with Sally Ann uh, in, I should have introduced April and Sally Ann. This is, this is the Australia travel team right here. April covers all of our donor relationships and Sally Ann is our deputy chief of staff and one of the many Australians that surrounds me, and I've got many of them. Uh, but Sally Ann and I were in Malawi uh, in December specifically to look at the sort of um, whoops the sort of complex set of issues around adolescent girls uh, getting married too early, uh, the high level of HIV/AIDS transmission there, and the uh, poor quality of secondary school opportunities. And we looked at that whole complex set of issues. And we had one me meeting with the Minister of Health, the Minister of Education, the Minister of Finance, and the Minister of Gender, and got them to agree to put together a task force to start looking at those issues with the president in the room sitting there, President Mutharika. Fascinating. So I do think that as we start trying on the SDGs for size and really realizing how we've got to achieve them, that that's where the conversation is going to have to go. But it's, it's not going to be, that's not an overnight thing, but it's something that we all ought to start talking about, particularly health and education and gender. Uh, there is data um, that exists like that. I, I'd have to go back and talk to our you know, individual country leads to look at specifics that have happened over the last couple of years, but there is data that shows sort of the synergies between those two. We can get, give me your name, we can get you some of that data. We can get some of that. Um, Emanuela, I went to the School of Languages at uh, mm. the University of Sydney, so obviously my concern is about language. Yes. So, and I was wondering, when you allocate the funding to the different countries, what is among your criteria those actually want, especially in these times of displacement and conflict, to keep the language, to preserve the language of a country, you know, when the, the, you train the children or you train the teachers to take those mm. obviously the children. You know, the, the, the question of, you know, from a technical uh, learning perspective, the question of language of instruction is a very sensitive topic. Um, the people who really understand how to re learn how to read when you're little uh, will tell you that it's a lot about hearing. And if, uh, and the state of the art at the moment about this is that children ought to be learning how to read in, their, in the language that is spoken in their house and then at a certain point later, if a government chooses to have uh, education in the official language that's you know, something else, French, English, Arabic, what have you, uh, that that transition ought to be later once the child has already learned how to read. 
but we think that governments really have to make those decisions very consciously, and we do work with governments around curricular choices uh, like that. But it's very tricky. It's also very um, there's some real pra you know pragmatic and logistical issues around this because in many of these countries there are hundreds of languages, hundreds of languages. I mean, you, you know, when you if you if you are envisioning what education you know way in the future might look like, you can think about technology solutions to do translating of lots of languages, um, but it's tricky. But no, it's, I think the core point is the governments have to be in the, in the driver's seat to make the decision about how they want to handle that, but in a way that's technically sound. Thank you. you. I presume this is nearing the end of what's been a very large mm -hmm. trip across the Asia Pacific. Yep, lots of nodding. <laughs> Looking forward to the end. So thank you for taking so many questions and, and for your presentation tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What a delight. And I congratulate all of you in the great work that you all are doing. Well, thank you. What we a wish cool you place. Well with GPA, because your success will be our success. There's no way. So, so would you please join me in thanking you? Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.